We are a resource for learners, including every member of the Livestrong Cancer Institute's on-track educational pipeline from middle school to residency. We are a growing collection of interviews, talks, and experiences that uncover the myths and the uncertainties of cancer and careers in cancer in order to empower and inspire generations of thinkers and leaders. This is Cancer Uncovered, an education and empowerment podcast by the Livestrong Cancer Institutes. It's weird because I'm sort of like, you know, black and brown people have been being killed by the police, right? And so this is not new. It's great the conversations we're having, um, but then you see kind of like it start to fade from the media and from people's social media. I'm hurt, um, I'm frustrated. Emotionally, I am also I'm sad. Cautiously optimistic, just over it. Brianna Taylor, Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, Eric Gardner, Michael Brown. The list of names of black Americans who have been killed by law enforcement goes on and on. The recent murder of George Floyd has sparked a conversation about systemic racism and white supremacy in the media, federal, state, and local governments, and college campuses across the country. For this month's podcast, we take a step back from cancer-specific topics to join the conversation on racism. We wanted to hear from medical students to learn about their experience as black Americans in healthcare and medical education, as well as the challenges they are overcoming on their path to become physician leaders. Our moderator for the discussion is Dr. Brandon Alport-Artillo. Dr. Alport-Artillo is an assistant professor of population health, internal medicine, and pediatrics at UT Austin's Dell Medical School and is a clinician educator serving as co-director of the primary care, family and community medicine clerkship at the Dell Medical School. He also practices as a primary care internist and pediatrician at Lone Star Circle of Care, a federally qualified health center in Austin, Texas. I wanted to just start us off by asking sort of generally how everyone's doing, how everyone's feeling right now, and then more specifically, how the recent extrajudicial killings of, of Black people and other people of color have affected you sort of on an emotional or personal level. Ciara Brown is a third-year medical student at the Dell Medical School. She is originally from Houston and is interested in emergency medicine or internal medicine. I'm feeling okay, generally. Um, I think that we're in the middle of clinicals and lots of busy times, so um, lots of different responsibilities to keep us um, busy, but this thing is still happening at the same time. So um, I'm unable to just be completely engrossed in work right now. Um, so on top of just being okay, feeling a bit unfocused. Yeah, I think Ciara um, had a wide range of emotions there, of which I can definitely uh, understand. Decoye Burton is also from Houston. He is currently a fourth-year medical student at Dell Medical School and is applying to a combined residency for internal medicine and pediatrics. Yeah, I'm okay too, but there are moments where you're like overwhelmed and moments where you're like, okay, everything's going to be okay. Um, but it's particularly interesting that it has sort of come into the mainstream consciousness right now. And I think a lot of 
that has to do with like, you know, the pandemic on top of what we're able to spread on social media and see and as a whole. So, but overall day by day, I'm okay. There are moments of, you know, where I'm not okay. And, but, you know, we just keep going. Um, I oscillate between hopeful and guarded. And so that makes me, it reminds me of things that have happened in the past when we see this big wave across, you know, it's in people's minds, it's all over social media, it's all over the news, and then what changes? And then it's like a cycle. Deanna Reese White was born and raised in upstate New York. For the past eight years, she has been in Texas, where she was a high school science teacher and guidance counselor. She is now currently a fourth-year medical student at Dell Medical School and is pursuing neurology. And so I've been oscillating between just feeling really hopeful and you know, empowered to like, that things are going to change, that I'm able to do really good work. And then, you know, but is it gonna, is it gonna stick? Um, For me, uh, the, the killings of black people on, you know, everywhere, and just being it being in your face all the time, it caused a lot of anxiety. Um, I would wake up and and check Facebook um, and just be angry, be anxious. Um, And then that would stay with me throughout the day. Uh, And I know after the murder of Trayvon Martin, I stopped watching the news completely. Um, It's all my mom watches on TV. So I would like, if I would go to her house, I'd turn it off or I'd be in a different room. So, um, but you just couldn't get away from, from it and you can't really hide from it. And, um, so it was really hard (laughs) and it's still really hard. And then layer on a pandemic, but I'm trying to be like Ciara said, uh, cautiously hopeful. Yeah. I would echo, um, what you guys were talking about in terms of, you know, this is not anything new and, um, you know, I think initially I was a little bit dismissive of um, of the sort of public attention that was was going on, um, and then uh, so the difference that I've noticed because this is not something new is that more people are are um, focusing on it. So I think in that way, this is sort of a positive moment. Um, in some ways, but obviously it's also, you know, a very stressful thing to go through. And, and as someone who is, um, Caribbean American, so I have a little bit of a different background and didn't necessarily grow up, you know, my, my grandparents grew up in majority black countries. And so some of the, the generational, um, stress that other people have experienced, I haven't experienced. And so it's interesting. I think that instead of sort of decreasing over time, my, my anxiety about public interactions is increasing as I'm more immersed in sort of what goes on in America. And it's also interesting because I think for the first time, a lot of people are like, wow, our, our, you know, government, healthcare, all of our public institutions that are supposed to protect us as all Americans are not necessarily doing that. And I think, um, it's been interesting to sort of just see. 
so, you know, starting with that as a baseline, I wanted to, to talk more about our experiences in the health system and in academic medicine specifically. So um, in terms of your, your rotations, your interactions with the health system so far, what manifestations of systemic racism have you seen, have you observed? I think there's, there's a, lot, <laughs> a lot of examples we could give and we've seen, um, even to, you know, so looking around our, our class, our classes, and just the demographic makeup of who is at Dell Medical School or medical school in general. Just the simple fact that we're one of how many Black students at our school? Um, there's not very many of us. Um, and I think, although I don't think people, or maybe it was, I don't know who built this system, but that's just what it is. It's the one, the med school admission system, having to do well in college, having to honestly have a fair amount of um, cash on hand in order to even apply to medical school and persist throughout medical school is uh, very, um, it discourages a lot of black and brown folks from going and staying. I think that um, we have to really think about if we want our physician you know, workforce to look like our patient population, what it means to really make medical school and medical education accessible to all people. But even like what, what we're taught and how we're taught. So if you think of like uh, on my peds rotation and thinking about like rashes of childhood, we never see what those rashes look like on black and brown skin. Um, you know, it it's, just simple things like that, that just kind of continue this pattern. But again, like what Dakoye said, getting black and brown kids into medical school. And so one of the main reasons I went to medical school from teaching, teaching kids who wanted to be, you know, doctors and nurses and um, showing them that you can get here and then being a mentor to them. Um, they need to see us here. The low amount of representation in students and also in faculty in medical education um, really affects me in seeing patients. Um, I sometimes feel burdened, and I don't say that to be a negative thing, but I sometimes feel burdened when there's a black patient on a service that I may be on to make sure I am caring for them to really take more control of their care. Um, because I think that there's already a thought in my mind that's been validated that they may receive subpar care or um, they may not be listened to or their concerns may not be um respected um, or even addressed, or they may be labeled something that is not them. And I think that it's a, I'm okay to be in that position as a medical student, but I don't think that it's absolutely necessary. And I don't think I should be the only one that feels like that. Um, and I don't think that my other um, classmates have to really deal with that um, when they are interfacing with the patient. You raise a couple of really good points. I think um, 
you know, one thing that really resonated with me is um, talking about the burden that, you know, we experience, which um, it is a negative word and we don't necessarily apply negativity to those experiences. But like, for example, I'm here right now spending an hour and a half doing this <laughs> and I'm happy to be doing it. I'm so glad this conversation is happening, but I'm not getting paid to do this. And I'm, you know, I have other things that I need to be doing. Um, and other people who have similar jobs are not, you know, burdened with, um, with activities like this. Um, I think another thing you pointed out was some of the systems that we work in. Um, so I think both on the individual patient level in terms of not being able to diagnose rashes in certain people, for example, or not being not treating pain um, appropriately in all populations. So those are, um, you know, on the individual level. But on a systems level, working in a federally qualified health center, which is a, a system that um, the focus is treating uh, people who don't have insurance or are underinsured, and um, you know, this is not a knock on my specific um, FQHC, um, but it's sort of a, a nationwide problem where we are working in this um, this scope of scarcity um, to treat these people, and we're not providing the same care that they would get elsewhere. And it's very frustrating for me um, as a provider to know that um, that people could be getting better care if they. Um, had that access. And it's not explicitly tied to race, but, you know, we see the statistics and we know what populations that impacts um, disproportionately. So, so that's, I think, a really important point. I think that we're, I think that we are taught about systemic racism in the medical field at our school from a very academic standpoint, a very objective standpoint that really removes a lot of the emotional component of this argument out um, in order for it to be better received, in my opinion. Let's give you stats. Let's give you um, studies. Let's, let's tell you that a study was done that says Black children got pain medications at a longer time period after presentation than a white child did for the same pathology. But I think taking that objective approach and how we are taught really removes the like most authentic piece of what we feel of systemic racism. And that is the emotional component. That is like the patient that is frustrated, that's not being listened to and how that makes them feel and how that makes them not trust the healthcare system and things like that. And I think it's just a, I think it's just a level of education that we're missing um, when it comes to that. So it's able to manifest. And I think that I just try to get in front of it by being there for the patient, but I'm only <laughs> a student. So it's kind of, it's kind of hard to always do that. You always kind of feel like you're battling against this system, this unspoken thing. Um, so, Yeah. As an educator, it's really good feedback to hear that maybe we're being too academic as we're teaching about um, these inequities. And, um, you know, I think in our clerkship, we've really tried to highlight uh, patient voices, but um, I think we can do even more to in that direction. So thank you for that feedback for the educational system as well. I'd like to like circle back to that, that feeling that Ciara said, and she used the term burden. I agree. I agree with that. Um, I 
I felt that as well when I was on doing my, my second year in the, my rotations um, in that every black patient that was on, on the list was my patient. Um, even if I, my list was full, I, at, I made sure that I saw that patient too. So they felt like there was someone there who I looked like them or had their back or because we see when that we, we feel that need because we, we know that, the system is not set up for them. I remember studying for step with Dupuy and my brother um, ended up being ill and having to go to the ER and this feeling of dread went over me and I had to run across the street from the med school to like, and I had to think, why did I feel that way? Like, okay, he's, he's sick. He's, he's okay though. So what, what did that feeling come from? Why did I feel that need to go over there and be a representative and advocate for him? Because we know the system isn't in place. That's for him. It's not set up for him, especially as a black man. Um, And I think we probably feel that within our own families. Um, But with patients, they become our family with black patients, especially I, I felt like when they're on your list, they're yours. And it's like you said, a burden, but not in that negative connotation, but I agree, Ciara, completely. Okay. So, so I think we've talked a little bit generally about, about the system and some of you have touched a little bit on your, your personal um, impacts, but um maybe we can elaborate a little bit more on, on how you feel like race has impacted you personally in your uh, medical careers, whatever you're, you're sort of willing to, to share about that. I would say everybody in medical school has some sense of this imposter syndrome, um, this doubt, should, should they be here? Are they smart enough? But I think we walk around with so much more added on top of that. Um, when you have, and you know, I've had things overtly said to me um, by faculty members, like asking for help with step uh, two when we were studying um, or step one. And, you know, it goes back to that giving just objective data. So having someone say, well, black students don't do well on step one. At the beginning of our study time, when I'm not performing well on practice exams, and then to have that play in your head for the next six months of studying and then the eight hours of taking the exam. That's not, (laughs) that's a different level of imposter syndrome. That's a different level of self doubt. Um, And it's exhausting just trying to prove that you belong. So I'll go ahead and go. Um, This question for me makes me, kind of think about intersectionality um, and what it is like to be Black, but also a woman. And when people that have um, not had the privilege of being around a lot of uh, Black people in their life, think of the uh, stereotypical Black woman that media likes to put out of being loud and angry and uh, things like that. Um, I fit the bill. <laughs> I am very much a, the stereotypical uh, black woman for a lot of people, and I think that affecting the effect the effect that has on my medical career is that I 
am constantly um, proving myself to the people that I'm around, um, that I'm as smart as them and I know as much information and um, that I'm as prepared um, as them and I'm as academically competitive or whatever. Even if no one says this is a competition, that is in the air. And so you come into it trying to work twice as hard and and get there. And everyone in the building um, or most people in the building can already feel, have feelings of imposter syndrome. But for you is even more deeper than that because there's this pressure of working against a stereotype. No, I'm not the... Um, angry one or, or things like that. I'm not less smart because of my skin color, because I'm a girl or whatever. But then there's also this sense where it took me a little while to kind of get there where I'm going to be proud of where I come from. Um, I'm going to be proud of being a loud person. I'm going to be proud of um, my hair, how it is in its natural state and be more unapologetic about that. And it's on everyone else to grapple with how to make sense of that. Um, So I think that it's been a journey for me, but I think that that initial hurdle and obstacle um, can really make a lot of people break. And it doesn't mean that you weren't a strong person. It just means that that was a hurdle that wasn't really meant for anyone to really overcome. And that's actually been my experience as someone that actually started Indiana and Decoy's class and left um, because of lots of mental and emotional pressures that resonated in my academic performance. And for the first time, I wasn't performing well academically, but there is no difference in who I was as a person besides just being constantly lonely, constantly sad, constantly feeling like I wasn't connecting to people. And it took me having to exit to come back to really excel because I had to just be around some people that looked like me, be around some experiences that were like mine and kind of get that validation externally um, before re-entering, which I don't feel like that should have even that, that shouldn't have been a requirement to be successful. Um, so, yeah, I think that nothing is ex- nothing is ever explicitly said out loud, but there's a lot of implicit bias. There's a lot of microaggressions. There's a lot of small things that add up. Um, and a lot of it is interactions with other people and how you're how you're treated and not anything that they overtly say. But a lot of the actions, facial expressions, things like that, and those little things just add up. And it's it's very easy to burn out. Um, being like that intersectionality piece, CR, is dead on. Like being talked over and you wonder, like, is it because I'm black? Is it because I'm a woman? Is it why is this happening to me? Um, being told <laughs> that there's an issue with my attitude during team (laughs) a lot of our team teaching activities um when I do then speak up for myself um that I need to give my feedback in a way that's lighter uh 
it's it's exhausting. It's it's another layer on top of the already strenuous medical curriculum, medical education that we go through. Then to have this layer layered on these microaggressions and macroaggressions and people just outwardly saying things and because maybe they're just giving you the objective data, but that isn't what we need. Um, Sure. Um, So I'm the only black man in my class. And so that is, I think what most people want to be is understood and particularly in medicine, you, if medicine will sort of challenge who you are as a person and your experience, it's just really, really difficult. And I think finding, you know, you talk about finding your community and finding your, your, your voice and finding your confidence in medicine. And that, I would say, I struggled with that for a long time. I struggled a lot with, do I belong here? And where are my people? And can I stay here? Do I deserve to be here? And clearly I got in just like everybody else and have passed all my courses and still here now, but there's always that, that sort of doubt of like, are these people my people? Am I one of them? And a lot of that gave way for me to like depression and anxiety, particularly at the end of my freshman year, uh, my second year, excuse me, um, I lost like I'm not a, I'm skinny as it is, and I lost 15 pounds and like wasn't eating. And Diana was studying with me during step, and she saw me at my lowest point of medical school, and sort of the it's literally trauma, right? Like when you go into a place and you have all these microaggressions, and you're you're go you're just trying to you know get through medical school, but you're having all these mental hurdles and experiences and. Um, so it's been hard, but I will say that um, I've learned a lot about myself and I've learned a lot about how to navigate the system and what I'm willing to give up and what I'm not. And so it's made me a better person and a better future position. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean I came out of it um, uh, without any bruises or scars or any long-term trauma. So working through that constantly. Yeah, I would, uh, you know, looking back on my own medical school experience, um, you know, imposter syndrome, like you said, is, is real for everyone, but is definitely sort of at a different level um, for us having to kind of prove ourselves at all times. And I don't think I ever consciously thought um, that it would go away <laughs> after graduation, um, but it was a little bit of, it has been a little bit of a shock uh, to realize that, you know, it's, it's a lifelong thing. It's, it's going to be around for a long time, you know, throughout the career. So this conversation is too important to end in a single episode. Next week, we will release part two of this podcast, which focuses on actions that we can take as learners, educators, and people to become anti-racist and to support members of our community. Until then, we hope you will listen to part one and reflect on the experiences that Dr. Alpor, Altio, Diana, Dukoye, and Ciara have shared. It's through stories like theirs where we will better understand racism in medical education and in healthcare and begin to make significant changes. I'm Nick Smith-Stanley from the Livestrong Cancer Institutes, and this has been Cancer Uncovered.
We would like to thank Dr. Alport Altillo, Ciara, Decoye, and Diana for making this conversation possible. We are grateful for their brave spirit and willingness to carry the burden of teaching us through their experiences. For more information about the Livestrong Cancer Institutes, check out delmed.utexas.edu. You can follow our director and chair on Twitter at S. Gail Eckhart. Eckhart is spelled E-C-K-H-A-R-D-T. If you have questions or have ideas of topics that we can uncover, email us at LivestrongCancerInstitutes at delmed.utexas.edu. Please make sure institutes is plural. And if you like the podcast, make sure you subscribe. This is Cancer Uncovered. Thank you for listening.